Hi, you're all very welcome to this workshop on Lawyers in Conflict and Transition, hosted by the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and it's a real pleasure to have this workshop based around this excellent new book. I would say excellent and affordable new book, but uh, it, it's, it's not cheap, but it is worth every penny. Lawyers in Conflict and Transition, uh, authored by Kieran McAvoy, Louise Malander, and Anna Bryson, and published by Cambridge University Press. And it really is a superb book, and we're going to focus the workshop on the book, a copy of which you've all received. Um, on my right, in the furthest seat, is Professor Louise Malander, Professor of Law and the Legacy Theme Lead in the Mitchell Institute. Sitting next to Louise is Professor Kieran McAvoy, uh, Professor of Law and Transitional Justice at Queen's and the Rights and Social Justice Theme Lead in the Institute. And sitting nearest to me is Dr. Anna Bryson, Senior Lecturer in Law at Queen's and also a Distinguished Fellow of the Mitchell Institute. Um, the format for today, as you can tell, there are microphones. Colm Heatley is kindly recording a podcast for this. And so when it comes to the question and answer session from yourselves, a microphone will be taken round by Wendy Louise or Colm, and you'll have a chance then to, to speak so you'll be heard. Um, if in the meantime, if you have bags and so on, if you could put them under your seats so that when people are walking around with the microphones, there's less chance of people falling over. Um, thank you for that. I also should read out that on hearing the fire alarm sound or in the event of an emergency, please exit the building through the main door, turn right and go to the assembly point at the car park. Don't stop to collect personal belongings, do not use lifts and don't re-enter the building until it's been deemed safe. That deals with the uh, requirements of health and safety. So thank you for coming. The format will be that I'll begin with a few questions for Anna and for Kieran and for Louise about the book and then we'll move to question and answer from you guys and we'll have a discussion of this important study. So I'm going to start by asking maybe Kieran to kick off by saying something about what it was that interested the three of you initially in looking at this subject of lawyers in conflict and transition. Karen. Okay, thanks Richard. Um, I think that the book came from a number of places. Firstly, I had done some work here in Northern Ireland with our former colleague Stephen Livingston um, on the role that lawyers had played during the Northern Ireland conflict. Um, my own PhD was on political prisoners and so I got interested in the relationship between um, political prisoners and their lawyers and did some work around that. Um, secondly, Louise and I had worked with our colleague Bryce Dixon on a big comparative project on amnesties um, around the world in, in five or six different countries we did field work. And I remember Louise and I were coming, I think we were coming from Monte de Video in uh, Uruguay, going to Buenos Aires, and we're sitting on a boat and we're kind of thinking, what next? And I said to Louise, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming up in this project about lawyers. Uh, amnesties can be very legalistic, obviously, and so the idea was born that we should do a grant and then um, we were very lucky in that when we started working on the grant and we needed a third member of the team um, and Anna Bryson, a historian, um, joined our team. Anna had a lot of experience. She'd done a book herself on political prisoners um, and she'd had a lot of experience in managing big projects and this was a big beast of a project and so she joined the team and the dream team was born and the book came from that and then it only took another... Ooh, seven, eight years from that on for the book to get over the line. So that was its origins, Richard. Thanks, Kieran. And as you mentioned there, there was significant grant funding as part of the process. Anna, could you say something about that and its relation to the development of the project and its trajectory? Sure, thank you, Richard. Um, yeah, I'll just take a moment or two, I suppose, to say uh, a little bit about the broader project from which the book emerged. 
Um, so, as Kieran mentioned, uh, this was an ESRC-funded project that extended over several years. In terms of methodology, as you might imagine, we started out with quite a substantial interdisciplinary literature review to try and identify the gaps that we wanted to close. But our data collection really, I suppose, hinged on 131 interviews that we did in six jurisdictions across uh, the world. And so um, the people that we interviewed included lawyers, legal academics, judges, those affiliated NGOs and social movements, and some politicians, journalists, prisoners, and others. And in case you think we can't count, the disaggregation of numbers there reflects the fact that, of course, many of these interviewees straddled uh, different categories, perhaps had been uh, a, a legal academic who moved into practice. Um, it's really important, I think, to stress that we couldn't have done this on our own. So we didn't just parachute into these six jurisdictions and, you know, line up interviewees that were willing to speak to us. We had really capable um, and able consultants in each field, and they began by producing a country-specific report of about 50 pages. They were also central then to actually setting up the interviewees, working closely with us around a wish list of interviewees, and being there on the ground uh, identifying translators where they were needed, setting up interviewees and so on. And so I suppose, yeah, we wanted to kind of, I suppose, acknowledge their uh, central role in all of this. The other thing I think I would just say is that it's easy to roll off the tongue that we did 131 interviews. But honestly, it, I think at one point as we were drowning in the data and the thematic codebook had reached 35 pages, I did a tally and worked out that we were working with something in the region of 1.5 million words in terms of the transcripts alone. So it is a staggering data set to try and put some, uh, I suppose, uh, to, to, to kind of work with. Um, and so difficult choices were made when it came to the book. There were numerous different things that we debated and could have put a spotlight on. I had an interest in gender, but we could have looked at class. We could have looked at generational differences. There were so many different variables that we could have, have worked with. But we used Invivo to crunch through the themes that came through most strongly. In terms of outputs then, um, we prepared 12 thematic reports. Again, this speaks to the broader project. It also harks back, I think, to an ethical dilemma that we had as academics from the global north that were, if you like, parachuting into the global south. And we were very conscious of the need, albeit in a somewhat tokenistic way, to put something back. And so we asked the people that we interviewed, uh, especially NGOs that were stretched, is there something we could do to help? And we invited them to suggest practical reports that we could produce alongside our academic outputs. Um, they were translated into Hebrew, Arabic, um, and other languages as necessary. Um, there were then, uh, obviously, our peer-reviewed articles, and finally, 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 this book. <laughs> so that's a brief overview uh, of the mechanics of the larger project. Thanks, Anna. I mean, one of the things I very much enjoyed about the book was the the richness of the diverse settings that you've got Israel, Palestine, South Africa, Tunisia, Cambodia, Chile. I wanted to ask each of you to say something, if you could, about the different ways in which the people you engaged with viewed the law as refracted through those specific settings. Um, maybe start with you, Louise, and then go to Kieran and Anna. But Louise, the, the very different settings in which people were seeing the law and the ways in which that affected their understanding of it. Thank you, Richard. Um, Obviously, this is quite a complicated question when we're looking at such a diverse and extensive set of interviewees across all these different contexts. And I'm, uh, I'm glad to see some of my colleagues from the law school here. I'm not sure whether everybody here comes from law or is familiar with transitional justice. But just to say, within, within the field of law, there are different ways of understanding the nature of law. 
Sometimes it's viewed as something which is neutral and predictable and of universal applicability. That's more doctrinal approaches to law. And from more socio-legal perspectives and more critical perspectives, law is viewed as not particularly neutral. Instead, it's something that's viewed as very much uh, tied to the particular social, political, and cultural context from which it arises. And I think those different strands of thought are evident within our interviewees' responses to how they view the law, how they view their own role as actors within it. And I think particularly the acute contexts in which they're working, where the rule of law is often impaired but a particular lens on how they were able to do that. Um, you've got to bear in mind, many of them worked in contexts where the rule of law was, was substantially eroded. Many of the principles in which it should be upheld didn't really operate. And I think in Cambodia, when we asked interviewees, what does the rule of law mean here? They said it means the rule of one man, the rule of Hun Sen. So it's very different ideas. But nonetheless, they were aware of what their ideals of what the rule of law should be. They were aware of the disparities of it. And I think somehow that shaped their work when trying to grapple for what they wanted it to be. Um, I think one thing that's particularly interesting through transitional justice literature is that in transitions is often a time where the, rule of, the law itself is subject to demands for, for change. And there are demands that the law becomes a tool for broader social or transformative change within society. So that can lead to demands for unjust or oppressive laws to be repealed, for legal institutions to be reformed or for new institutions to be created. Uh, for new legal frameworks to be put in place to tackle impunity for serious human rights violations or structural injustices. And so all of this suggests transitions as periods of political flux. And so for lawyers who come from a background where they want the law to be viewed as stable, and indeed in contexts where that very idea of legal certainty is part of what's drawing people towards the law in transitions, it can be a challenging time for lawyers to think about how much discretion do they have to, to question some of their established legal concepts or legal processes for doing things. And I think these themes came through particularly in the chapter on lawyers in transitional political negotiations. Um, we spoke to about 12 lawyers who'd been directly involved in high-level negotiations along with about another uh, 15 people who were commentators on negotiations and were aware of the role that lawyers played. And I think through that we found different, different approaches we had some lawyers who, I think in keeping with views of the profession as being naturally conservative, saw themselves as legal technicians. Their role was there as a legal drafts person to try and bring clarity to the law, to bring some degree of legal certainty or legal security to tell uh, negotiating parties that if you sign up to this, the courts are likely to find this valid and the agreement will stand. Um, we, and in some contexts, that meant that they restricted the transformative potential of the agreement. So in South Africa, for example, there are a number of human rights lawyers who are viewed as you know, constitutional visionaries, who played a really important role in ensuring that the, the new constitution set up in transitional South Africa was imbued with human rights protections. But within that, they, they came from a background where they were um, had a Western, liberal, English-speaking educational tradition that was their culture and so they understood rights such as the right to property within their framework and that meant that they did not pursue options for land redistribution you know curtailing curtailments around how much transformation could be achieved through their constitution in ways that other more radical lawyers critiqued during the interviews with them and so you know those other lawyers 
often talked about how they came to law, particularly because of its social and political potential. For them, law was a tool to achieve the change they wanted to see in society. And that's how they approach their work, whether it was through challenging repressive power in the courtrooms or whether it was through how they entered into negotiations recognizing that there could be space for flexibility, recognizing the concepts needed to be understood in different ways. And sometimes they played quite creative roles in persuading political negotiators to sign up to things that they might otherwise have been nervous around. But I, I think through all of it, what was striking for us was how far individual lawyers' engagement with their law and their awareness of their own space for discretion within it was shaped by their, their personal backgrounds, their legal education, the types of professional experiences they had, particularly whether they worked outside the law sometimes, in, in politics, in academia, for example, um, and also by their, their political beliefs, their religious beliefs, their, um, and their familiarity or different perceptions of the law within pluralist societies. So really, there are lots of different things that shaped how our interviewees came to that question. Thanks very much, Louise. Kieran, reflections on the diverse settings in which people operated, things that are shared between them or things that are very different in the different cases? I, th I suppose one of the things that, that uh, this project did for me, Richard, was it made me less cynical about law and less cynical about lawyers. And I suppose by, by disposition, I probably am quite a cynical person. But, and you can imagine what it's like if you're a lawyer, for example, operating in the Pinochet era in Chile, and you're going and you're, you've gone to court and you're, you're, you're representing a family saying, my, my um, husband has been disappeared, and the state's response is, uh, oh, that person doesn't exist. You, know, you have no expectations of justice. If you're a, an Israeli or a Palestinian lawyer in, before the military courts um, in the occupied territories, um, the conviction rate's 99% in those, in those courts. So one would expect, if that's the, kind of, that's the context within which lawyers are operating, you would have expected a profound cynicism um, because obviously in, in many of the most authoritarian contexts, law is itself a, primarily a tool of repression. You know, the apartheid era, for example, the apartheid regime um, used law. It was its primary delivery mechanism for, for repression. Um, and so one would expect profound cynicism amongst lawyers, particularly politicized lawyers. It's actually the opposite for many of them. Um, law was kind of central to one of what one of our interviewees talked about as the vision thing. And it's almost where law becomes um, part of uh, uh, imagining a different universe, essentially. What, what things might look like in a future democratic state. Um, Albie Sachs, the very distinguished um, South African judge and, and former political prisoner, former lawyer, one of our heroes um, in all of this, he talks about realigning law with justice, basically. It's part of the vision thing about imagining a, a new South Africa. And so for me, one of the really interesting things about this was seeing how lawyers in the most extreme circumstances held on to, I think we describe it in the book as a stubborn commitment to the rule of law, despite all of the, all of the cynicism that one, one might expect. And I, I was thinking about it recently, I was watching the news um, about Ukraine, and I was, there were, um, this was one of the cities that's been heavily destroyed um, by artillery fire. And so in the middle of, people are trying to reestablish water and you know, they're trying to get food supplies up and running. And in the middle of it all, there were teams of people going out trying to gather evidence for future prosecutions um, for, for potential war crimes. In them. And you would think, like, you have things to focus on here, like, you know, water, food, security, and so forth. And yet in the middle of that, there are people looking at the CCTV footage, traffic CCTV footage, to see if it's captured any war crimes. And I thought, like, in the middle of this physical devastation, 
there's something in there about, about law and about law as a kind of symbol of reconstruction. And it's an emotional and a psychological dimension to law. So for me, that, it, as I say, it, it, it lessened my natural cynicism about law and lawyers. Thanks, Karen. Anna. Um, thanks, Richard. I mean, just picking up the, on the point that you've just made, Karen. I think one of the things that I was really interested in was this idea of lawyers as, as memory activists, as one of them called. And in that Chilean context, certainly lawyers spoke to us about the futility in some respects of lodging these habeas corpus writs, knowing that they weren't going to be accepted by the court. But what they talked about was that this paper trail, it's a paper-heavy legal culture, and they were very conscious that by documenting very carefully the name of the individual that was disappeared, the date on which they were disappeared, and filing all of this shy of 20,000 cases, um, you know, they were not expecting justice in the present, but in line with this vision thing that you've just mentioned, they were, I suppose, expressing and, 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 and give, bearing witness to a belief in an imagined future version of the, future, of the rule of law wherein account, legal accountability might be possible. And indeed, that archive became central, of course, to just that, to holding the Pinochet regime to account in uh, transitional uh, legal mechanisms. So I think that whole notion of where lawyers find the creative spaces to resist, and indeed in, in quite subtle ways, not just in the transitional period, but also during the conflict, um, you know, to, to, to bear witness to a vision of the rule of law and an imagined version of justice that might one day be real was something that we were really, really uh, quite interested in. Um, and actually, I mean, they were working very closely in Chile with uh, an NGO that many of you will be familiar with, the uh, Vicariate de, uh, de Solidariate. I've just mixed my English and Spanish version of that. But it was founded in 1976 with the support of the Catholic Church. And it was one of those images that really stays with me of these lefty communist lawyers carefully and faithfully filing this archive that's being protected by the archbishop in his flowing, you know, purple robe. And, and that protection of the church was something that was really quite interesting in the Chilean context in helping uh, to preserve uh, the, these archives that became so important in the transitional period. That, there's actually, a, I don't know if you guys remember, there's actually a story um, from one of our interviewees about precisely that. So at one stage, the, these young troops, many of them conscripts, Pinochet's troops, come in to raid the archive of which is where all this legal material has been placed and it's in, the, it's in the Archbishop's palace essentially and he goes out and stands with full purple robes preventing these obviously Catholic young conscripts from getting access to all of this stuff that has been put there by communist lawyers and it's a kind of amazing kind of coalition communist lawyers and the Catholic Church in full redress using the power of the church to stop these and the troops backed off because he as, as Anna says he was in full gear like stopping them come forward you know? and it actually works Yes, exactly. I, I'm going to come to questions from the attendees at the workshop in a moment, but one more question from me to each of you, if I may. Um, this has been mentioned by you already, and it seems to me one of the themes throughout the book is the complexity of the ethical terrain that people are navigating in these contexts in all sorts of ways. Um, and it's something which, as was mentioned, it's relevant to you as authors as well. But could you say something about the ways in which the people you're engaging with and the work that they do um, has involved a complicated set of challenges and ways of trying to overcome those challenges in regard to ethics? Maybe start with Anna, then Kieran, then Louise. Anna. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, this question was thrown into sharp relief in the work that we developed around legal boycotts, because 
as the lawyers in the room will know, I mean, representing your client is obviously a key component of your legal and ethical obligation, um, you know, representing your client is so fundamental. And this was not abandoned lightly by any of the lawyers that we spoke to who had considered engaging in legal boycotts. But alongside the legal and political arguments for and against engaging in boycotts, so, you know, where people felt, look, I'm actually part of the problem here. If I'm representing clients where there's a 99% uh, conviction rate, you know, really, am I part of the problem? Am I beautifying the occupation, as one of them suggested, uh, rather than challenging it? But really, I think, um, beyond those legal and political arguments, what people spoke to us about, and this is where this project was, focusing on lawyers as real people and talking to them about these very real human ethical dilemmas where they talked about you know the importance of of being the human face for those clients those particularly vulnerable clients and the multiple roles that they played you know so I mean, this was where we uh, got into Waldron and bestowing dignity and so on. It wasn't just about giving legal services. It was also about bestowing hope and dignity to those who needed it most. And I think also, in spite of, you know, the rather dire kind of prospects um, and the conviction rates I mentioned, um, there were also elements, I suppose, of what we called the sand in the cogs, where lawyers talked about that resistant foot dragging, that everyday resistance uh, perhaps, as Abel talked about in South Africa, slowing down the grand project of apartheid until politics, you know, could help uh, to turn things around and wherein that vision we talked about might begin to be realised. Um, so I think, yeah, for me, it was about um, the, the very human dimension uh, and, and the multiple roles that these lawyers played and speaking about, yeah, just how real uh, those ethical challenges were when they put a human face on the individuals in front of them and thought about the multiple roles they played. It reminded me, actually, of interviews I did years ago with prison chaplains who talked about, I wasn't just giving spiritual services. I was a social worker. I was liaising with the authorities. I represented the prisoner at family funerals. And that came back to me as I thought about these multiple roles that lawyers played in fulfilment of ethical obligations in very difficult uh, circumstances. Thanks, Anna. Kieran. For me, Richard, one of the, uh, I suppose, and I'd hark back to my own interest in, in the Northern Ireland context as well, for me, one of the most interesting ethical challenges for lawyers, particularly lawyers who self-identified as cause lawyers, who, who said, you know, they, at some level, um, they were sympathetic to the political causes of their clients. So then the question becomes, and in a context where usually um, the bar, bar associations, the rules and regulations that govern um, professional conduct of lawyers is, has been captured by the state. Um, the state, you know, so the bar is usually aligned in, in many of the contexts we work with, with the state itself. So if you're saying I'm a cause lawyer, I believe in the cause, be it the anti-apartheid struggle, for example, um, and, and, the, and your normal ethical rules and regulations um, by, by your bar association are essentially complicit with the state, where do you find your ethical boundaries? And we were interested in exploring that with cause lawyers. And so we found different, we got different answers as one might expect in different contexts. So some people, some lawyers, very much as the lawyers that I, I would have interviewed here in Northern Ireland, self-described as human rights lawyers. And they said, so my, my, my commitment as a lawyer is to broader international human rights standards and principles that gave them a resource, obviously, in terms of international networks. Um, but it's also it's a sword and shield of protection for a lawyer in these kind of contexts, you know, where, where, where the state will be um, putting you under significant pressure. So that's one way of, that's one ethical set of standards that lawyers used, human, uh, international human rights standards. Others, very upfront, 
I'm a cause lawyer. For, I'm a cause lawyer first. I'm a struggle lawyer in South Africa is the term that, and I believe in the struggle. And you know, so and a lot of the leaders, for example, in in, in the NC were themselves struggle struggle lawyers. Mandela, most obviously, Oliver Tambo, and others. Um, and when we we pressed them, you know, on this issue, and one of the things we would ask is, so okay, you're a struggle lawyer. You're committed to the struggle. So some of them would say. Um, I remember one interviewee who, who's then a minister um, said, you know, you couldn't be neutral in the apartheid era. You were either in favour of the struggle um, or you were with the regime. That's as far as I was concerned. Other interviewees, I remember one of them who's now deceased saying that she, she was one of the most uh, uh, well-known lawyers working with political prisoners on Robben Island, which would have included Mandela and the rest of the leadership. And so she said, I was a courier. I was carrying information back and forward between the leadership in prison and the leadership of the ANC outside outside the country and, and also outside within South Africa itself. And so we were interested in the ethical boundaries of this. You know, we said, okay, well, what, where would you draw the line on passing information back and forward between the movement? So, for example, we asked this directly. So say, for example, your client is a political prisoner and wants the movement to know that a unit has been compromised, that there's an informer in the unit. And then that leads to, obviously, if, if the military movement, it's a very high chance that that person's going to be killed. Um, and where, where is your ethics on that? And some, some lawyers would step back from that and say, this is a struggle. You know, that's, that's where they went. Others had a slightly more nuanced position. I remember one interviewee who's a totally committed uh, South African struggle lawyer said, on this issue, I would be conscious that sometimes my own client could have been turned my client could have been, you know, the, the, the state could be using my client to set me up, to capture me as a lawyer. So I would have been looking, almost looking at a higher kind of set of ethical guidelines. We asked some political prisoners this. I remember Palestinian political prisoners saying on this issue, he said, I'm committed to the struggle. The lawyer has a different job. I wouldn't ask the lawyer. So the, so the ethical boundaries in that context were actually being framed by, by the client. The client is making calls. Um, and then the other ways in which people found their, we, in the book we call it, um, it's slightly clunky, but it's, we couldn't come up with a better way of, of, we called it, I think, a pragmatic moral community of other cause lawyers. So basically you take advice from sensible people about what you should and shouldn't do. You don't believe in the, the so the bar is not your, a resource for you. But if you're trying to steer, and you're committed to the cause, but you're trying to steer an ethical, a professional and ethical uh, pathway around this, talk to sensible people who, who, have, who, have also, who are doing the same thing or who have experience of doing that. Take their advice, and I remember one very prominent lawyer saying, and don't do stupid stuff, basically. That was his way. So it, it's a, comp in these, in these um, kind of contexts, Richard, Finding a kind of ethical way forward professionally is really, really challenging for these lawyers. Thanks, Louise. Um, this is an issue I looked at in the book primarily around the role of government lawyers. And I think my interest in doing that was a consciousness that go, go, in most settings, government lawyers are thought of as playing a gatekeeper role. It's their role to hold the line in government on legality, to tell civil servants and politicians where they're going too far. And I think we all know that if government lawyers don't do that, it opens the door to, to corruption, to human rights abuses, and to you know, the erosion of trust and legitimacy in the state. So this was something that we thought was hugely important for, given the context that we were looking at. And in thinking about this, we looked at the you know, principles that are common in ethical standards for the profession around the world. So thinking about the relationship between lawyers and clients, the duty of loyalty to your client, professional independence, for example. And what we found, firstly, common to the work of government lawyers in democratic settings 
in these contexts, uh, transitional lawyers or, or government lawyers found they had a challenge identifying who their client was. Sometimes they felt it might be the minister in the department they're working for. Sometimes they might feel it's the government of the day. Sometimes they felt it was the institutions of governance, irrespective of which party was in power at a particular moment in time. And on other occasions, they, they felt it's the public interest or duties to uphold the rule of law more generally. I think what was also clear coming through our interviews is how challenging it is to hold the line, even on just you know, blunt illegality in these settings. One of the more powerful interviews I remember is talking to a prosecutor in Cambodia who was reflecting on how he felt about himself and his career in a context where corruption was endemic, how hard it was to try and engage in ethical legal practice and what the repercussions would be for you if you tried to stand up to power. And the whole way through the interview, his sense of unease was really apparent. He chose to speak about this, but he was looking around him at the time. You, know, you could see he was very, very uncomfortable and fearful even talking about it. And it was something that stayed with me after that interview, feeling a sense of responsibility towards that interviewee in terms of making sure we kept the data secure, you know, which you want to do anyway, but you're aware of the real personal risks for those involved. Um, Running through all the interviewees you talked about, too, I think there was a real sense of an awareness of the importance of legal ethics. It was something that the lawyers we spoke to really reflected on. I mean, I'm conscious that our sample of government lawyers was biased towards those who have worked on human rights or transitional justice issues. And so perhaps it's not replicated for government lawyers working on, on, in other areas. Um, I think we saw differences of opinion in how they did this. So for some of the lawyers, particularly those in the more democratic settings, they saw their role as to help the elected government of the day to fulfill its policy objectives and to only say no in contexts of clear illegality. So for them, their own personal, political, moral, belie moral beliefs should not come into how they do that job. They see themselves as politically neutral. Um, that was a subset of our interviewees. Many more interviewees who we spoke to saw themselves as having an obligation to the public interest. They saw themselves as civil servants as well as lawyers, and they felt they had an obligation to serve the public, and within that to uphold the rule of law. Now that becomes quite complicated. The academics can spend volumes and volumes of words looking at what does the public interest mean, and we can discuss how well-equipped lawyers are to determine what that is. But for some of our interviewees, they talked about it in terms of substantive conceptions of human rights. So it was a view of the public interest that was in itself grounded in law, a particular understanding of law. For other lawyers, they saw it as something which was informed by their own sense of values, their own sense of morality. They talked about their starting point being, let's find out what's just, and then develop our legal arguments towards the outcome, you know, to make sure that we're doing the right thing in developing the, these arguments. Um, in terms of how that played out, some of the government lawyers we spoke to in Israel talked about their growing unease with the occupation. And in one case, that led them to leave the profession because they felt they couldn't offer legal advice in that, in that context. In Chile, we spoke to government lawyers who worked for a department with the purpose of which was to support victims of the Pinochet regime, human rights abuses, in order to obtain prosecutions and redress from the state. And so those lawyers, they worked for the government, but they viewed the victims as their clients. And so at times, that led them to publicly align themselves with the victim in, in the face of government opposition, you know, to denounce obstructionist policies by the government, even at times to litigate against their own government. 
and so they could see quite different positions the governments that these lawyers were taking. Um, we also interviewed some lawyers who had been part of the previous regime. So we interviewed apartheid lawyers who'd stuck around after the transition and worked within the state. Some of them adapted to the new dispensation and found common ground with their colleagues. Other lawyers we spoke to talked about the ways in which they continued to work by the values that had informed their work prior to the transition. So they, in effect, became conservative cause lawyers within the state. Um, I think on a personal note, when we were working on this book, I was really conscious that in the news around us were examples of legal advice being given uh, in the UK by some of the government legal advisors in the context of Brexit. There was the really egregious example of William Barr's career in the United States and the work he was doing under the Trump presidency to erode democracy there. Um, and of course, today we're all, I think, dealing with the, the consequences of the leak of the American government's, uh, the Supreme, American Supreme Court's this vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so reading through a lot of these transcripts and working with them, I was finding myself um, really sympathetic to those lawyers who were acting in accordance with their values when they aligned with my own, when they were progressive and human rights orientated. But I think I had to conscious, you know, all the time be careful of the fact that when you open the door to this, you open the door to people acting in accordance with their own very different sense of morality, with their own very different sense of religious beliefs. And it's a very difficult issue, I think, for, for, for lawyers to grapple with. Thanks very much, Louise. All three of you have given us brilliant insights there into the origins, dynamics, and arguments of the book. There's now a chance for people attending the workshop to ask questions. Uh, who's going to start us off? And there's a microphone. Thanks, John. Hello, I'm, I'm John Morrison from, from the Law School. Um, I have a copy of the book and I'm reading it with, with great enjoyment. It's not only incredibly scholarly, it's also a, a rattling good read, I have to say. Um, one thing which you do engage with, which I'm particularly interested in, is the way in which um, lawyers sort of starting off with a rather individualistic um, professional idea become, become involved in, in, in wider political conflicts. I mean, you have the lawyers, obviously you talk about, I guess, in Chapter 5, who are the, the, the cause lawyers and so forth, and, and the government lawyers. But the way in which the, the individual lawyer who, who doesn't see themselves necessarily as a, as a cause lawyer, but sees themselves dealing with legal problems, with all the, this socialization which lawyers have to see themselves as objective and neutral and so forth. And particularly as law is, is so individual, particularly human rights, of course, are, are very individual rather than focused on, on, on bigger issues. So I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about, about the journey which lawyers had to move beyond their professionalization, their professional norms, and, and how they kind of drew back from that and how they kind of negotiated becoming uh, too political and remaining still lawyers. Thanks, John. I think it'd be good to hear from all three authors on that. Maybe start with Anna, then Kieran, then Louise. Yeah, I suppose what comes to my mind, John, I mean, it's a good question, is uh, a legal academic we interviewed in South Africa who had uh, worked with the women's movement. And she talked about going in as an individual lawyer. And this harks back, I suppose, to the literature on lawyers and social movements, because she said, you know, I did go in, you know, uh, not quite as the authority, but as the individual lawyer. And what was really interesting was the way in which, if you like, her self-declared legal hubris was held in check by her involvement with this broader social movement. And she said, I quickly learned that I was not the oracle. And I learned a lot from working with these various different elements of this particular social movement movement. And I think that that was um, replicated across a number of different interviewees, this journey that you talk about that individual lawyers went on. Certainly in, with regard to legal boycott, it became very apparent 
that to have any chance of success, you had to work with and through, you know, broader movements, broader political movements. And it was only when there was, I suppose, when you, there was uh, it coalesced, you know, a kind of particular moments with, within political movements where the context and the time was right to, that you had any chance of success. And those boycotts that fell flat in their face were ones that were quite individual, that didn't bring in those broader, they didn't garner media support, didn't garner the support of perhaps the Jordanian and Bar Association and so on. And so we've lots of examples, I think, where to have any hope of success on these broader campaigns, individual lawyers learned that they had to work with and through broader uh, social movements and political movements. And as I say, I think we have some good individual illustrations of precisely that journey that you're talking about uh, in the book. Yeah, it's a good question, John. I, I think uh, actually the, the, the example that's in my head is a Northern Ireland example. And it's so, as you know, um, Northern Ireland legal practice, a lot of small firms, small solicitors firms. And when, when um, myself and Stephen were doing the field work here, we were interested in what we talked about as, as key moments in the history of the Northern Ireland legal profession, and in particular, galvanizing around the call for a public inquiry into the um, murder of, of Pat Finucane um, and, and, the, and the collusion of state actors in that. But if you want to, if you want to, pop, if you want to get lawyers, individualized lawyers, who are focused on their legal practice, involved in small p or big p politics, if they're not cause lawyers, if they're just ordinary lawyers, the way to, to achieve that is through law talk. And it's through law. Because what, they, what the people who were successful in pulling together that extraordinary general meeting um, where, the law, where the Law Society of Northern Ireland voted um, where the law, uh, in favour of calling for a public inquiry, it was a big moment in, in the history of the, of the local um, profession, was they framed it exclusively in legal terms about the international human rights standards. Um, and it's that, if you, so, so that shifting the individualised lawyers towards big P or small P political processes requires law, law talk is the route to that. If you go down, this is about politics, it's about the nature of their regime, you will not galvanize support from non-political lawyers. So the route to the galvanizing, to shifting people along um, that towards a more politicized space is through law talk, John. I think that's the only way you'll bring them with you. I think um, that question was one I was thinking of, particularly during our field work when um, we were working in some of the more authoritarian contexts. Listening to lawyers in Cambodia, for example, raises how far ordinary lawyering becomes very difficult in authoritarian contexts. Any sort of casework that brings you up against power suddenly becomes political. And so there are a lot of lawyers who began their work just being, doing very ordinary cases who found themselves in, in situations where they were su suddenly having to make these you know, difficult types of ethical choices and or their political consciousness rises and it causes them to take particular directions. One, one other story from our interviews that um, was in my mind when you're asking me the question is a, a lovely... Um, lawyer we interviewed in Chile in his house and he was in his 80s at this stage but he was remembering um, very early on in his career in, in the, 19, the early 1970s before the Pinochet regime he had been working on employment rights issues and just prior to the revolution he'd been doing some work in the south of the country so very far away from the capital Santiago with uh, trade union activists I think who were involved in mining and he'd got to know them very well you know, and he'd been representing their cases. And the night before the revolution, he'd been playing cards with them and having a few beers. You know, it was a very friendly relationship. And what happened to him then was the next few weeks, all these people he knew started disappearing. 
one by one because they were trade union activists and they were targeted by the Pinochet regime. And he found himself in a situation where he felt lost and he didn't know what to do. But he started going to court and bringing Amaro cases, as, um, as Anna was talking about there. And so he did this as an individual. He didn't know what else to do. He just responded as a lawyer using legal tools because it was the evident choice for him. Gradually, over time, he became aware of the Vicario de Solidarity and the work that other lawyers were doing, and he, he found his community, and he began to work within them. But in the early days, everything was very atomized, and so lawyers found themselves having to do that work individually. A contrasting example, I think, for me is Tunisia. There, uh, during the Ben Ali regime, the bar, there had always been government efforts to co-opt the Bar Association, but to some degree, it had retained a degree of autonomy, you know, waxing and waning through the decades of the dictatorship. And within the profession, there had always been a cohort of lawyers that challenged the regime. But when the revolution came, suddenly every lawyer in Tunisia was political. They all turned out into the streets. There were thousands of them in all the main cities marching in their robes, <laughs> leading the revolution. And in some cases, they, they, took, they were very brave. You know, they saw themselves having greater social capital. They acted as human shields to the other demonstrators, standing in front of them in ways that were intended to be protective. So there was a lot of heroism to what they did. And as the transition unfolded, they played an important mediation role for which they won the Nobel Prize jointly with other actors in Tunisia. So they had a really important collective role as a profession in pushing for change, political change within the country, uh, to, you know, giving a voice of weight and authority to ensure stability through that transition. And at times they informed the substance of the transition too, through making recommendations about measures to tackle corruption, for example. But um, they also used it very much as an opportunity to secure substantial protections for the legal profession itself, including constitutional guarantees saying that they were a co-equal partner in the constitution with the judiciary. And as the transition unfolded, many of the most radical lawyers left the profession and went into politics. And what you were left with was a much more conservative bar association that became internally disputed and in how far to push some of the more transformative agendas within the country or what their internal positions on it were. And gradually it just became a much, much quieter voice. And so I think you can see different things. So there, you know, I think the reason why all the lawyers turned out, some of it was political, some of it might have been very much about their profession and their frustrations about career trajectory and the inequalities in society, and they saw it as an opportunity to improve the profession's standing. Thanks very much, Louise. Next question from the workshop. There's a question at the back there. Thank you. The uh, microphone will come around to you. Thanks very much. Um, hello. I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a researcher. I'm a social researcher. So I'm particularly interested in, in, in the, the way in which you, you chose. Obviously, the people you spoke to, they all had fabulous stories and experiences. How did you choose the 131 is my first question. And uh, my, my second question, if you'd allow me, is in chapter four, you talk about gender and cause law lawyering. And it says in the intro, uh, but being a woman obviously makes it even more difficult, you know. Um, maybe you could say a bit about gender differences and what you observed there. Thanks. Two great questions there. Um, Anna, do you want to start off on that? And Louise? Do you want to do the choice of interviewees and I'll do gender? I don't mind. Uh, so on the, on the choice of interviewees, first of all, the first thing we had to do was figure out which jurisdictions to go to. So we had a long list of 12, I think, originally. And then we wanted to capture a range of experiences, you know, so um, authoritarian regimes, places where there was ongoing conflict, which was Israel-Palestine, 
Cambodia was there because we wanted to capture, there's an ongoing, um, the ECCC, which is an ongoing international tribunal there. So we had various, you know, different kinds of legal tradition, common law and civil law and so forth. So we narrowed it from 12 to 6, figuring out also doability and safety. Actually, we had, at one stage, we had thought um, about going to one particular jurisdiction to look at it, and we just thought it was too dangerous. Um, so anyway, that, those were kind of practical um, and, and, and theoretical reasons for picking the choices. In terms of the, the choice of interviewees, um, as Anna said, so we had local researchers in each jurisdiction. Um, some of the jurisdictions we knew better than others, so we, um, Louise and I have worked a lot in South Africa over the years, and as well as Israel and Palestine, so we knew it better, and so we knew a significant amount of people. The, the people, the, the choice, we wanted people who were, I mean, we weren't looking for property lawyers or, you know, people doing, you know, civil litigation. It was people who were involved in, uh, law that was relevant to the conflict, essentially, um, and we wanted to get a broad as cross-section as possible. So if you were involved in that kind of work, um, we wanted to get right and left-leaning lawyers if we could. So we had a set of wee benchmarks. We wanted as best we could to get um, a balance around gender, around seniority, and we wanted to get some people who'd moved into legal academia, some had become judges. So we had a whole range of wee ticks that a long list, God love our local researchers, um, and, we, and, and we also so the, just the practicalities, we, we were doing this field work uh, relatively quickly. You know, we were doing it over a period of, you know, seven to ten days kind of stuff. So you had a list of very full-on interviews. And so we would send that kind of wish list. Um, we would also pick up people. We, when we looked at the secondary literature for each of the sites, you know, you'd say, well, that's a really interesting person there. They've been involved in a lot of interesting litigation. They, we definitely want them. So it was that. It was a kind of mixture of the literature. You, you're really on these, in this kind of comparative work, you're really reliant on the expertise of your local researchers. You know, they, you're really, we, we were lucky. I mean, we, we chose well. People really were very good and, and they steered us. But that's what you do, basically. You figure out your checklist. Here are all the variables that we like to cover as best we can. I mean, it's not a representative sample in any sense. It's qualitative work. Like so. But you do your best. I would say the weaknesses in it, for us, obviously, we struggled to get right-leaning cause lawyers. We got some, so we got some pro-apartheid lawyers, and we got um, some pro-settler lawyers, and they were really interesting as well. They were settler cause lawyers, and but that they, they are, if it's not representative, but it is very unrepresentative on hard right, and the hard right ten, uh, tend to be hard to get to, to be honest. You know, so that's that's a weakness in in, in the methodology. Uh, Anna, and then Louise. Yeah, so on, on the gender question, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that what we documented at first kind of blush was what is familiar across the globe. So you're picking up complaints about, you know, long and unsociable working hours, women being siloed in pink ghettos, working in family law, underrepresented in the senior partners of commercial firms, all the kinds of things that we're familiar with in the gender uh, sociology of the legal profession, gender and the legal profession. But I suppose what we became interested in was what was different, okay, or what, what, what was particularly sharper in the context that we were looking at. One of the things I think that came to light was, if you like, paradoxical opportunities that some women lawyers refer to. So with the sheer volume of arrests and, and, and legal work that was generated in conflict, some of them says, look, I actually, you know, became quite a celebrity cause lawyer and was, was work, you know, so we interviewed a number of you know, what others refer to as legendary female lawyers who had come to prominence um, through, through their work as human rights activists and human rights lawyers. Um, but alongside that, there were undoubtedly particularly gendered harms and particularly extreme harms that you would not typically associate with settled democracies. So you're thinking of 
the Israeli human rights lawyer that spoke about going into a bar after work for a drink. She'd been there the week before with colleagues from a well-known human rights firm and she was threatened that she'd be raped in a dark alley the next time she was seen and how difficult that was for her to cope with. A Palestinian cause lawyer talking about, you know, choosing her underwear carefully because she was routinely strip searched going through airports. Someone else spoke about being shackled in a cell, you know, with other females. These are not normal harms. And actually, one of the things that was really interesting for us, I had mentioned the Chilean context earlier and the protection of the church. And we probed with lawyers whether or not they felt that their profession, and perhaps in the Chilean context, association with the church, these things offered a degree of protection. And some of them said, well, yes, actually, there weren't as many of us assassinated. But one of the women we spoke to in Chile uh, said, well, they didn't assassinate me, but they did assassinate my cleaner to intimidate me. Now, that's not normal. But that kind of indirect harassment, intimidation, and so on, some of it particularly gendered, um, and some of it also throwing up, I think, very interesting questions more broadly about what can and should be done to protect lawyers in these very, very difficult uh, contexts. So I don't know if that answers your question or sheds some further light on, on the gender dimensions. Thanks, Anna. Louise? I think Anna and Karen have answered those questions really comprehensively. I guess just to add on the um, on our interviewees, one other thing that we bore in mind thinking about which lawyers to interview is the types of practice they engaged in. So we have a mixture of lawyers who worked for the government, who worked in human rights NGOs or public interest litigation firms. We have lawyers working in private practice as well or working in international criminal tribunals, for example. So there was a lot of different sites of employment. And you know, within that, there's people who are working on your know, permanent jobs, have been in that job for their whole career, some who are on fixed term contracts. You know, there's lots of different dynamics about the, the employer's career and the organizational structures in which they operate. That was interesting. I think we also... Um, in every, in every country, balanced our interviews with lawyers with interviews with a number of other interested commentators. So that included primarily legal academics in many settings, or not just legal academics, but academics who could speak to the culture, the society, how law is understood there, what the role of the legal profession was. Um, journalists, in some cases, uh, often human rights activists and NGO workers who weren't lawyers, um, who could talk to the importance of having legal representation, what makes a good lawyer in these situations. Apparently, it's someone who answers the phone at three in the morning if you're in trouble, if you're an activist in Israel. Um, we talked to trade unions, we talked to people working in bar associations. So there was a lot of other people around who could give us a flavor on how lawyers are perceived, how they operate. And I think often that was quite a useful counterpoint to... Um, Lawyers themselves, we perhaps, you know, give a, give a perception of lawyers as heroes sometimes. And so it's, you've got a broader understanding of their, their social capital, the, you know, the, the legal culture and society by talking to those who perceive them as well as those who actually are engaged in legal practice. Thanks very much, Louise. We've got time for one more question before the workshop comes to an end. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Microphone coming now. Thank you. I'm nearly too embarrassed to say, but I'm a languages graduate from Queen 64-68 era. I decided to do an open university module on criminal law last October. Now, my thought processes are obviously very naive compared to this body of very sophisticated people. I've just scattered all my notes. I'll see if I remembered what I was saying. According to the open university, you know, we are trained to regard a crime in terms of issue, rule, application, and conclusion. I'm just wondering, what really is the status of statutory law? I'm thinking of, for example, the Serious Crime Act 2015 and so on. 
And what, the, the concept of a, a lawyer working in the best interests of his client, uh, do, do you know, there's flagging up in my obviously naive mind about criminal law, uh, lots, of, lots of things that are being overturned. Did I drop another note there? Does anything of what I'm saying make sense? Like, there's lots of laypersons like myself they're flying up these questions about the, the sacredness of, of law. Do you know, I'm, I'm at a, a family note. What is the status of statute law in determining criminal liability? And secondly, is it a defense to state that one is working in the best interests of one's clients? Thank you. Thank you very much. That's great. I'm going to give Louise, Kieran, Anna. Sure, I'll have a stab. Uh, issues of statutory interpretation are, are uh, often quite controversial <laughs> amongst lawyers. And so in the context that we were looking at, for example, you would have statutes um, where it was lawful to discriminate against people on, on the colour of their skin. I'm thinking about South Africa, for example. That's a statutory law. That was, that was part of the law of the land. So what the lawyers in our context were doing, for, to use the South African illustration, um, of representing the best interests of their client, um, as Anna said, in some instances, they would be trying to put the sand in the cogs. They would find little nooks and crannies within the law that would allow them to best represent their client. You know, that might even be a sentence reduction or something like that. You're trying to find little little pockets of light, essentially, in a, in a, in a very repressive regime. But in other contexts, and this runs contrary to the interests of the client, so these are quite strong clients that you're representing. As a, you know, if you're if you're representing committed ANC activists, for example, in a South African trial, um, you think about the Mandela trial, uh, the Riviona trial, um, and sometimes the clients themselves will dictate how they want to be represented. So you might, as the lawyer, be saying, uh, "It's it, you know, I have found a very clever little uh, wheeze over here, a little legal wheeze over here, and I think we're going to run that defence." And your client says, "No, no, that's not what we're going to do." I want to make a political speech. I want to make a political speech, which is what Mandela does in his own trial. I want to make a political speech to the world. And you as the, you as the lawyer are saying, my determination of what's in your best interest as my client is, it'll really annoy the judge if you go down that route of making a political speech. And I can understand you want to do it because you're part of a big political struggle. But in those kind of things, the client was dictating what was in the client's best interest. So you as the lawyer, a bit like what Anna was saying earlier on in terms of um, women, the women lawyers and the relationship with the women's movement, sometimes the, the client is sort of, inverted commas, putting manners on the lawyer. Sometimes it's the client who's saying, because of their nature of the clients, they're highly politically motivated, they're saying, this is the way this is going to go. And if it means I'm going to get an extra 10 years, that's how it's going to go. So the lawyer's in a very different in representing the best interests of the client and in seeking to interpret statutory law and find nooks and crannies around it, you're in a, the context that we're talking about are very different and sometimes the client is the boss, basically. Thanks. Louise, Anna, do you want to respond? Um, yeah, I, mean, I agree with everything Karen was saying there. It was making me think of one of the activists we interviewed in, um, in Israel who talked about, you know, the, when you go to court, there's, there's ideal ways of doing that and you want to find particular victims to be the face of your, your litigation and all these different strategies. And then at one point he said, sometimes you just go to court because you want to scream. We want to use the platform of, platform of the courtroom to draw attention to issues. And so it's not about winning the case. They know the case is impossible, but they just want to use that platform, the media coverage, everything that goes with it in that space. And we, we heard similar things in Tunisia, particularly from lawyers who were involved in representing uh, those involved in Islamic armed militant activities. You know, they talked about using strategies of rupture 
in the courtroom, which you know is established strategies where you're trying to denounce the state. Other lawyers in less radical cases who felt that um, they wouldn't be able to achieve justice in the courtroom talked, framed their um, frame their legal arguments in ways in which they tried to maximize the denunciation of the state. So they talked about knowing that the judge would be very unreceptive to arguments grounded in international law, but nonetheless using it because they could denounce the state's position in domestic law and international law, and it gave them a double denunciation is what they were thinking of. So there's lots of ways in which the courtroom is used in that sense. I think for government lawyers, many of them talked about how the law is often ambiguous. There isn't, you know, there may be statutes on certain things, but they don't always cover novel issues that come up. There were often unforeseen circumstances. There were often gaps and challenges within them. And that's where the legal ethics questions that we were talking about come in. How do lawyers think about the space or creativity? How did they approach those questions where the law isn't always as clear a guide as it could be, which is a common feature of transitional setting? Yeah, I mean, I think just to add to what Louise has just said, I mean, I, I think in particular that instance of you know, using courts as sites of resistance, but appealing to the judge and, and people talking about going to court to prick the judge's conscience, but also appealing to different audiences. I'm thinking work you've done, John, uh, on on judges and late law and audience and so on. It was really interesting for us to think of them going in sometimes, and they are appealing. It's international media, they said it was our primary audience. In other cases, they brought victims' families into court, again, appealing to the judge's conscience. And so they're trying to find these creative ways and means of working within what they sometimes decreed as wicked legal systems, you know, um, to try and find spaces for resistance. And so there were interesting outworkings, I think, of all of that uh, literature and law and performance, law and audience uh, and so forth. Thanks very much. Uh, we've had an excellent session. It's time now to bring it to an end. Three points in conclusion. First, thanks very much to Wendy Louise Smith, to Colm Heatley and to Brett Walker for organising the workshop and organising the podcast recording. Thanks to the attendees at the workshop for taking time out of your busy schedules and for the superb questions. But this book is a really terrific book. It epitomises, I think, what's best about the Mitchell Institute. Brilliant original scholarship with a society facing societally committed quality to it and for their reflections on it um, we're all very grateful to our speakers today to Louise Malander to Kieran McAvoy and to Anna Bryson thank you very much